through the book of Philippians, which is a short letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, which was one of his favorite churches, one of the churches he wrote to because he was actually happy with them. And uh, we're getting to one of the, the, the most important passages in Philippians where Paul describes the work of Christ from a heavenly point of view. It's Philippians chapter 2. This might be a familiar passage to some of you, but it is really one of the critical passages for understanding who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He was, in very nature, God, but he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word for God's people this morning. Now we just uh, received new members, and as part of receiving the new members, we had a new members class, which, which the new members uh, participated in. And one of the, the things I talk about in the new members class is how there's different kinds of households. And, uh, you know, depending on your background, different people grew up in different kinds of households. Uh, you know, and I think in most households, everybody has to pitch in to get things done. You know, you got to make your own bed, someone's got to fold the laundry, someone's got to do the dishes, someone's got to cook, someone's got to wash the babies and things like that. But then there's other households that a few of you grew up in, or maybe a few of you maintain now, I won't point you out, but you know who you are, where there's a butler, and there's a maid, and there's a cook, and there's a nanny, and pretty much everything gets done for you. And I personally hadn't had much experience, or any experience at all, with a household like this, but then this, this summer, or this, this past winter, I was traveling through Africa and visiting some friends, and they had all that. And let me tell you, it doesn't stink. I definitely recommend it. If you can get the butler and all that stuff, it, it's, it's pretty good. But, uh, you know, in a normal house, to keep things going, to keep things decent, to keep things neat, everybody has to work hard, and everybody has to pitch in, and everyone has to participate to make things going. Uh, but, but then in other houses, you know, if you've got a butler and a maid and things like that, then you can just sit around all day and everything is done for you. Uh, you know what? I've observed as I've gone around to churches, some churches are built with sort of the butler and the maid and the cook and the nanny kind of approach to church life, where there's there's a lot of people who are hired and who are brought in to do all that kind of stuff. And I just want to say this is not one of those churches. This is the other kind of church where we're only going to be able to go as far 
as the people in the church are willing to take us, as the, the service of others in the church is willing to bring us. In fact, everything that's happened in our church to this point has happened because of the volunteers, because of the initiatives, because of different people who've been happy to use their gifts and to use their talents to serve in different ways, you know, whether it's in the children's the children's ministry or in the hospitality or even setting up and breaking down. We have pe people who volunteer every Sunday to get that stuff done. And without those volunteers, honestly, there wouldn't be a church here. Uh, and, and everything that's good in our church, everything that's meaningful in our church has come because of this. And I believe everything that's going to happen in the future that's worth happening, everything that's notable that for the future that's going to that that's going to be of significance is going to happen because people are willing to serve as well and this passage here is actually the main passage on this because this is the passage what that talks about the call to christian service in light of the service of christ towards us so i want to go through this in in three points the first is understanding the call to service and the call to service comes from the command of Christ. In this passage it says, Have this mind in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was God, he became man. Though he was a man, he became not just a man, but he became a servant among men. And the, because Jesus is the ultimate service, the Bible teaches that the heart of Christian practice is a life of service. You know, one of the surprising things to everybody who was following Jesus was it was apparent, as you read the Gospels, that Jesus was absolutely the most powerful man that ever lived. Remember the story of Jesus? He could feed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. He could command a dead person to rise and the dead person would rise. He could command the demons to leave a person and the demons would leave the person. He could even command the winds and the waves to be, to be silent and they would be silent. Remember that he had control even over the winds and the waves. And so as people were watching him and observing him and listening to what he was saying and, and realizing he, he had come to bring a new kingdom, his disciples and the other followers were assuming that, okay, when he sets his mind to it, when he uses the power that calmed the wind and the waves to blow out the Romans, we're really going to make quick work of them. Remember, Israel was under the Romans and and they were looking for a Messiah who would liberate them. And they said, this, this is going to be a snap with a guy who has this kind of power. And then he's going to set himself up as king. And then, so the only question for the disciples as they approached Jerusalem the last time was, well, who's going to sit on his right hand? Who's going to sit on his left hand? And who's going to be in the back office? You know, that, that's what they were arguing about among themselves. And, uh, and, and so they're, they're on their way to Jerusalem and they still don't get it. And... Jesus realizes what they're arguing about, and he's just exasperated. So he calls them all together, and this is in Mark chapter 10. And he says this, he says, You know, those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not with you. Instead, among you, whoever wants to become great must first be a servant. Whoever wants to be number one has to be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Jesus was indeed the Messiah. He did indeed come to liberate his people. He did indeed come to establish a new kingdom, but he didn't establish it by dominating and destroying his enemies. He established it through his willingness to serve everybody. You know, see, Jesus said his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom where greatness is accomplished through servanthood. That's exactly the opposite of the way our world works. You know, in, in our world, how, how do things work? When you meet a, a great person that's measured by how many people serve them. You know, you, you, you meet a military commander, and, and if a military commander is trying to explain to someone who's not in the military what their rank is, they, they'll say, well, I've got 12 people who are under my command, or I've got 24 people, or I've got uh, 150 people or 1,000 people who are, who are under my authority. And, that, and that's how you kind of define what someone's rank is in the military. And in the corporate world, it's kind of the same thing. How many people are in the division that you run? How many people are you in charge of? How many people are, are on the team that you are responsible for? Because greatness is measured by how many people serve us in this world. But in the upside-down kingdom, it's the opposite. Greatness in the kingdom of God is measured by how many people you serve. Because the kingdom of God doesn't advance through power and control and destruction. It advances through people who are willing to serve. Jesus himself, the most powerful man who ever walked this earth, who could have, with a word of power, established his kingdom in the blink of an eye, but he came as a servant. He won his victory through his willingness to serve. And the followers of his will be servants as well. Remember the hymn? You don't remember the hymn, but there is a hymn called Lead On, O King Eternal, and it has this particular verse in it. It says, It's not with swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but with deeds of love and mercy that the heavenly kingdom comes. See, the kingdom of God is a kingdom that advances with deeds of love and mercy. Let me just give you a couple of examples of this and then it might make sense to you. Think about this. If, if you have a loved one who becomes really sick or is, is, maybe, or is injured in a devastating accident and they're going to take months to recover, what do they need in order to recover when they're bedridden, when they're broken, when they're recovering, when they're ill? You're only going to recover if you have someone who's willing to serve you, right? If you can't get up, if you can't take care of yourself, you're, you're, you're going to be dependent on people who are willing to serve you or you're not going to get better. Because you can't command and control someone to recover. You can only serve and nurse someone back to health. And at every level, I believe healing only happens when people are willing to serve. And another aspect of this is just connection. One of the things about serving other people is it builds a connection with others. And in our disconnected world, one of the reasons we're so alienated from others and disconnected from, from others is because we don't really serve one another. We're not really engaged in helping one another. And so, and so we're all just in our silos doing our own thing. But one of the things that happens when you serve other people is it builds a connection. You build a connection by giving a little bit of yourself to them. You build a connection by building into their lives a little bit of your life. The great example of this, the, 
undeniable example of this is a, uh, a mother with a child. You know, that, that child comes into the mother's life and starts taking life out of her and continues to do that for decades and decades and decades in most cases. But, but along the way, the mother builds this connection with this child that, that's undeniable and it's based on the mother's service of that child. If we want to feel connected to others, one of the ways to do that is to be willing to humble ourselves and serve others. If you want to help someone heal, if you want to help someone recover, if you want to re help restore somebody, if you want to be a healing force in this world, you've got to be willing to be a servant in this world. That's what the life of Jesus teaches us. That's what common sense teaches us. So there's a challenge to this because it's ridiculously inefficient sometimes. And I know particularly for some of you are thinking, I just don't have time for that. I don't have time to volunteer. I don't have time to serve. I don't have time to get involved because life's so busy and because I'm in so, so much demand in, in these other areas. You know, if you bill out at $1,000 an hour, what's, what, what's the point of sitting in a nursery for an hour holding, holding fussy kids? How does that even work? But the glory of Christian service is its ridiculous inefficiency. What I've found over the years is when people decide for a time, for an hour, for a day, for a week, for a month, that they're going to serve someone else, even though it's at ridiculous cost to their own career or to their own lives and in other ways, but just because there's someone who's in need of service, there is a benefit and a growth to the kingdom of God that happens because when you do that, you're following the life of Jesus, who was in very nature God, but he let go of his equality with God and became a servant. And, you know, the positive effect of, servant, of servanthood is something that I, I think is, has become more broadly recognized and embraced around the world. And, you know, that's why fraternity houses and sororities and dormitories in college will have these service days where everyone goes and and serve some, some people. And even I've noticed that it's a new thing in the corporate world to have these corporate work days or these corporate service days where everyone gets a, a free day off and they can go do a service project. And, and, you know, of course, we do these kinds of service days in the church, and, and sometimes we do them in our neighborhoods or our communities as well. And, and I think the surprise when you actually participate in these, when, if you let yourself participate in these, these, these service days or these service moments is how much fun they are. You know, I, I had a remarkable experience as in my previous church for years and years, I took high school kids, you know, really bratty, spoiled high school kids. I specialized in the bratty, spoiled ones. But uh, I would take high school kids on a, a service trip to Haiti in the Dominican Republic, and we'd make them work in really difficult conditions and, and help these, and help kids and do, do uh, do little Bible camps for the kids and things like this. But the amazing thing to me was these kids were having more fun on this trip. I was convinced they had more fun on this trip every year than they would have if we had taken them on a Disney cruise. Because something about being called to serve, something about giving of yourself and helping other people is, is more edifying and, and more inspiring than any entertainment or indulgence, really, that, that has been cooked up in this world. And so that's why service has become popular in our corporate events, in our neighborhoods, in, our, in frats and sororities and everywhere else, is because people have begun to recognize this. And they don't know why, 
But here's the reason why, because service is the means by which grace is transferred. In fact, service can be so powerful that it's actually dangerous in a way. It can be dangerous to serve because sometimes when you serve, you can, you can even get addicted to the, the good feelings and the groovy vibes of serving. And sometimes that even can develop into a sense of pride and entitlement, a way to, to uh, try to control the outcomes and uh, control the way people turn out you know, at, at its extremes. Uh, what, what therapists refer to as codependency is when you, you try to leverage your service to control how someone acts or what someone does. And oftentimes that happens with us, you know, and, and I think this, this happens in the church too, and, and it, it's, a, it's a natural byproduct of this process. But when you start to get frustrated and angry with the people you're trying to help because you're, you're, trying to, you're, you're putting more effort into helping them than they are into helping themselves. Have you ever felt that? maybe with your kid or maybe with a friend that you're, that you're doing all this work trying to help someone sort their, their life out, but they actually don't want to sort their life out. They're fine just the way they are, and so they just stay on the road that they're on. But, but there is a, a danger of frustration. There's a danger of resentment, a danger of feeling overburdened because you feel like, well, I'm doing all this service, and why doesn't anybody recognize it? Well, I'm doing all this service, and and why isn't anyone else helping me? And why don't more people do this? And, and sometimes you get in this, this vicious cycle, someone to find a codependent relationship like this. They keep making messes and you keep cleaning them up. You know, they make messes, you clean them up, and they say, what, what's wrong? Everything, everything's fine here, but it's only because you're, you're, you're stuck in this cycle and you feel, uh, you feel like you're not appreciated. And so, but I think I mentioned that because what happens often, and I've seen this over the years with people, especially in the church context, is people get all excited about being involved, get all excited about doing service type work, and then they quickly burn out or get, uh, get frustrated because they feel like, like their work isn't as appreciated or they're not getting the help that they need. But, but the, but the balancing to that is we got to re recognize not just the call to serve, which is the command of Christ, but also the character of service, which comes from the model of Christ. Jesus was unique, obviously. He's an example for us, but he's, he's, he's an example that we can, we can only imitate behaviorally. He was different than us. It says here in Philippians chapter 2, he was in very nature God and yet he became a man, and then as man, he became not a king among men, but a servant among men, and was obedient to death. That's the story of the gospel. You know, the Christian story is summed up in our three main holidays. On Christmas, God became one of us in the incarnation on Good Friday. God gave himself for us, redeemed us when he, when he died on the cross, and then on Easter, he redeemed all humanity and began the restoration of all things when he rose again from the dead. And at one level, that's really inefficient, God becoming a man. And now the Bible says, and, and Christian theology tells us that the two natures, the human nature and the divine nature, are combined forever without mixture, confusion, separation, and division. Jesus is fully God and fully man, one person, forever and ever. That's even more inefficient than a high, 
high-priced lawyer working in the nursery for a week. But, but this is what you've got to understand is at the heart of the Christian gospel. The book of Philippians was written less than 30 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. And here, Paul is talking to the, to the church at Philippi, and he actually, the, the section in your program that's indented, that was actually either a poem or probably a song that was part of the very early church tradition. And Paul's talking about the service of Christ, and so he quotes this song about, about Jesus being God and becoming a man and then giving up of himself. So the ancient view of Jesus, the original view of Jesus, the thing that set him apart was that he was in very nature God and he became fully man at the same time. And that's the heart of the Christian faith. That's the first thing that the early church had to resolve. It's uh, expounded in the Nicene Creed. Some of you might remember this where it says, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from lights, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him, all things were made. And that, my friends, is the heart of the gospel, that God became one of us in the person of Christ. And that's, that's an amazing thing. As you, if you understand the, the doctrine of the Incarnation, the Christian teaching of the Incarnation, one of the things you, you, you begin to grasp about it is that what a profound challenge that was to the culture of Jesus' day. Remember, in Greek philosophy, for, you know, from the uh, legacy of Plato, there was this idea that the physical is corrupt, the physical is inferior, and the goal of human life is to go higher and higher into the spiritual plane, because the spiritual is, is what's close to God. But Christian doctrine is actually the opposite. God came down and became one of us. That he who was God of God and light of lights became a baby and became a man and was born in this world and walked in this world. And that's, that's the, heart of, the heart of the gospel. It was a tremendous challenge to the ideals of Jesus' day, and it's a tremendous challenge to the ideals of our day, to realize that in space and in time, God was born, God lived, and God died for us. But it also tells us something about the, the nature of service, that for God to serve us, he had to come down and get dirty with us. And so for us to serve others, God calls us to be willing to get down in the dirt and do what needs to be done. Service, Christian service is not just a spiritual and theological thing, but it's a practical and personal thing. It's about feeding the hungry. It's about housing the homeless. It's about helping those in need whatever way they, they feel those needs. But it's also about a king who became a servant. The other thing that's amazing about the story of Jesus is God became man, but he didn't come in regal robes and have everyone bow down to him. He came as a servant. He was in very nature God, did not consider equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. Among men, he was a servant. And that was a profound thing in the very first century as well, because you need to know, before Christianity gained a foothold, 
they didn't recognize that all people everywhere were, were valued the same. Slaves and servants had very limited human rights in first century Greece and in first century Rome. They were considered something less than human. But when God became man, he didn't become a king. He didn't become even merely a citizen. He became a man who was a servant. And, and you need to understand that, that the doctrine or the belief that, that is coming today of the universal dignity of humanity and of equal rights, that all men are created equal, that was something that was gifted to the whole Western world by Christianity. It was, that was a teaching of Christianity that then, then became pervasive in the, the broader world. It was not something that Aristotle or Plato or, or Socrates or any of the Greek teachers uh, believed before, before Christianity ascended. But that was the path to redemption, that God humbled himself and became a man, but not just a man, he became a servant because it was only through him becoming a man and becoming a servant that he would be able to humble himself and die for our sins. But what you got to understand is he didn't deny his deity. He didn't deny his dignity when he became a servant. It was actually the exercise of his dignity and the exercise of his glory. Because the story of Jesus is that, that the path to glory is through being willing to serve. Um, you know, the story of Jesus and the call of Christian service is a call to service and not servility. And to, to illustrate the difference, some of you might have played sports in high school, or, you know, if you're on the soccer team or something like that. At the end of practice, when you, the captain yells out, okay, freshmen, get the balls and move the goals. And whoever's the freshman on the team, they've got to go around the field and collect all the balls and then move all the goals off the field or whatever else needs to be done. But meanwhile, all the freshmen are thinking to themselves, I can't wait till I'm a senior and I can boss around the freshmen. And uh, you, know, you might have experienced that on a sports team. You might, be, you might be experiencing that right now at work. Who knows? But, uh, but that's, uh, that, that's being that, that feeling of being servile, of being forced into service. But, but service from a Christian perspective is an exercise of our dignity and an exercise of our glory and an exercise of our strength, not a humiliation or a denial of these things. And the great example of this comes in John 13. You remember, in John 13, the disciples are sitting down for what's going to be the Last Supper. Remember that, the Last Supper? And somebody has loaned them a room. Someone's even laid out all the food and just given it to them and said, okay, you guys can celebrate the Last Supper, which was, which was a Passover meal. It was one of the Jewish high holy days. And uh, they're all getting ready to, to celebrate the Last Supper, to, to celebrate this great ceremonial meal, but there's only one problem. What was the problem? Anyone remember? There was no one there who was volunteering to wash everybody's feet. And the one thing that they didn't provide the guys with, the disciples with, was a servant to wash everybody's feet. And so this was just awkward for everybody because just the etiquette of the day before they could celebrate a, a, a fancy meal like this, an important meal like this, someone had to take care of all the foot washing. And since there wasn't a servant there, it should have been whoever was lowest on the, uh, 
lowest on the totem pole should have stepped up and volunteered to do this. But, you know, of course, the disciples weren't playing it that way. So none of them was volunteering to say, okay, it's, it's my turn, guys. I'll go ahead and do it. And so they were in this awkward situation. Remember, in the Middle East, they didn't have dining room tables like we do. If we had dining room tables and everyone was sitting around a table, then it wouldn't be a problem. But they all kind of sat on the floor sprawling there. So, so imagine trying to eat Passover meal and there'd be all these big stinky feet everywhere. That's what they were trying to avoid. And so finally, if you know the story, Jesus gets up and takes a towel and takes a basin of water and he goes around and he washes everybody's feet. You guys heard the story before, some of you? Not if you've heard the story before. Okay, you've heard the story and, and he goes around and he washes everybody's feet and he's a, he's a picture of servanthood, right? But now what's important is what he says at the end. Uh, in verse 13, sometimes we, we cut cut this story off before we get to this. Jesus says, do you guys understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. See, Jesus didn't wash his disciples' feet because he was the lowest among them. He was the one who was willing to serve because he was actually the highest among them. See how that works? He had enough dignity that he could humble himself and wash everyone's feet. Everyone else was too insecure and too weak to be willing to serve. So Christian service is an expression of our strength and an expression of our identity as children of God. It's not servility. See how this works? Jesus said, I'm happy to wash your feet because I know who I am. I know what I am. And, and so I can serve you as an expression of my strength and an expression of my authority, not, as, not, not because there's something lacking in me. So that's the character of service. When we know who we are and when we have that kind of dignity, then we can bend down and get our hands dirty and get on our hands and knees and clean what needs to be cleaned and help who needs to be helped. So that's the character of service is the path of Christ. And then finally, the third thing is the condition of service. The condition of service, this actually isn't for everybody. Like I said, serving others is powerful. In fact, it's so powerful, I think it can be dangerous and it can be detrimental to you and it can be detrimental to the people around you. And often, frankly, it is detrimental to people when service is done in the wrong way and from the wrong motives, when it's done because the person who's serving needs to get something out of it or because the person who's serving needs, ex expects and demands that people respond a certain way. It's not for everybody. It's only for those, this command and this model is only for those who have had a certain experience. Philippians 2 puts it this way, therefore, if you have encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have comfort from his love, if you have common sharing in the spirit, if you have tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete. Then this path is something that you possibly might be able to go down. See, service in Jesus' name is limited, and the power of service, as Jesus describes it, is limited to those who understand what it is to be united with Christ, who've felt comfort from his love, who are filled with the spirit of tenderness and compassion. You know, when that supernatural 
experience happens to you, then out of the overflow of that, you'll have the power and the ability to serve others. So what this is saying is before you can serve others in a way that will honor Christ, you personally need a deep encounter and a deep connection with Christ yourself. Or to put it another way, you need personally to be someone who's allowed Jesus to serve you. Then you can become someone who can be used by Jesus to serve others. Because see, the heart of Christian life is not, well, I do all of these things and therefore I'm somebody who's set apart. I'm somebody who's great. The heart of the Christian life is Jesus became a man for me. Jesus laid down his life for me. Jesus died on the cross and washed away all of my sins. And because he did that for me, now I can give myself to others. Now I can extend myself to others. Because the Christian spirit service doesn't come out of a sense of merit because I've done all these good things for other people, but it comes out of a sense of humility because I recognize that my identity is based on what Jesus has done for me. It's not something that I use to manipulate other people to get them to do what I want them to do, to get them off drugs or to get them to straighten out their life or to get them to clean up their room or whatever it might be. But Christian service is freely given by grace with no strings attached. Christian service is not given done to make me feel important. It's done because I know that he is important. But as we do that, there's a power that's released. As you commit yourself to serve in Jesus' name, that's when you experience love. That's when how we experience healing. That's how healing happens. That's how we experience real connection with other people. That's how real restoration happens in our world and in our lives and in our hearts. And that's how we, that is the path to real joy. But it starts with this, allowing Christ to serve you. Having a life where the thing that really shocks you and the thing that really overwhelms you is the radical generosity of Jesus to you. And the fact that Jesus humbled himself when he was God, he became man. And when he was man, he became a servant. And when he was a servant, he was obedient even to death and death on the cross. And through that, his glory was revealed. Through that, that was the path to glory. And Paul ends the passage by saying, therefore, because he humbled himself, because he was obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory of Christ, the, the, the grandeur of Christ, the victory of Christ was through the path of service. And if we want to know that victory, we'll walk that same path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the service of Christ. The only hope for me, the only hope for everyone here, I pray that we would be transformed by a personal encounter and understanding of that service, that we might reflect to a watching world the grace and the love of Christ as we step out and reach out to serve others. We pray in his holy name. Amen.